Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with some breaking news tonight. New comments tonight from the president when asked if he's going to fire special counsel Robert Mueller or Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. At a press conference at Mar-a-Lago, the president was asked whether he's concluded that it's not worth the political fallout to remove them. Now, this is how his answer began. There was no collusion, and that's been so found, as you know, by the House Intelligence Committee. There's no collusion. So that's how he began and went on for quite a while. Now, keep it honest, as long as he keeps saying that, we'll keep saying this. The Mueller investigation is not over. We don't know what it will find. As for the House Intelligence Committee, as you know, that was a Republican-controlled committee whose investigation dissolved with the Republicans saying there was no collusion, but the Democrats saying there was more work to do. And it was chaired by Devin Nunes, who was caught not telling the truth about his relationship with the White House as it related to aspects of the Russian investigation. As for the president's response, the actual question about firing Mueller and Rosenstein, here's what he said. As far as uh, the two gentlemen you told me about, Uh, They've been saying, I'm going to get rid of them for the last three months, four months, five months, and uh, they're still here. So we want to get the investigation over with, done with, put it behind us. Well, it is true that Mueller and Rosenstein are still there, but that doesn't really answer whether or not he's concluded it's not worth the political fallout to fire each of them. And as we know, fortunes and minds can change in a heartbeat in this White House. Now, this is actually the second time today the president has mentioned the Russia investigation and its surrounding drama. As former FBI Director James Comey continued media interviews this morning for his new book, the president was doing a little writing himself, or rewriting, as it were, rewriting the reason why he, the president, chose to put the former in former FBI director. This morning, the president tweeted, quote, Slippery James Comey, the worst FBI director in history, was not fired because of the phony Russia investigation, where, by the way, there was no collusion except by the Dems. Now, you have to admit, for one tweet, it kind of scratches a fair amount of the presidential itches. There's a nickname. There's the ever-popular all-caps no collusion. And most importantly, a totally different version of events from what the president has previously said. Keep it honest, we know the president fired James Cohen because of the Russian investigation. Now, when I say we know it, I mean we know it as much as we can know anything the president says. In other words, we know he said it. Whether it's true, that's an entirely different story. But we know he said it. He said very clearly that he fired Comey because of the Russian investigation. And we know he said it because there was a camera there pointing right at him. Regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey, knowing there was no good time to do it. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. 
So that was in May of 2017, right after he fired Comey, attributing his decision to the Russian investigation. Today, he says he didn't fire him because of the Russian investigation. If there were anyone else involved in this, some other administration official who was saying something contradictory to the president, we'd say it was a, a messaging problem that, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. But this is just the president directly contradicting himself. It's like it's like the left hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing or the left hand is lying or the left hand is betting that there are enough people who only care about the latest version of whatever he's saying. Truth and consistency be damned. Also, it wasn't just what he said to Lester Holt a day after he fired Comey. The president also made it very clear why when he met with Russian officials in the Oval Office. According to reporting, the New York Times, he told the Russians that he had just fired the head of the FBI, who he described as crazy and a real nut job, and said, quote, I face great pressure because of Russia that's taken off. Now, that came from a document summarizing the meeting, which was read to the New York Times by an American official. No American reporters were allowed in that meeting. Even these photos came from a Russian news agency. So keep it honest, it comes down to what you believe. Do you believe what the president said on national television at the time, what he also said to the Russian officials the day after he fired Comey, or what he tweeted this morning? On The View today, Comey was asked why he thinks he was fired. I don't know. I, I took him at his word when he told that to Lester Holt, and I read in the media that he also said that privately to the Russians the next day in the Oval Office. So I took him at his word. I don't. Today's tweet, which I've seen, I don't follow him on Twitter, but I've seen the tweet. Both of those things can't be true. I actually think that illustrates part of the problem that I'm trying to bring up, that mm -hmm. it, it matters that the president is not committed to the truth as a central American value. But so I don't know what to make of it. Well, that brings up another possibility, the danger in taking this president at his word and the possibility that the president simply can't keep his own story straight, which is a somewhat troubling notion as those who don't remember or don't care about the truth of their own history are prone to rewrite it. Joining me now is CNN National Security Analyst and New York Times National Security Correspondent Matthew Rosenberg. Matthew, as we just heard, the president stared down a camera a year ago, explained in his own words why he fired Comey. The idea that he would just revise that reasoning now as if the rest of us don't remember it seems kind of incredible. I, I mean, there's a lot about the Trump presidency that seems incredible. We're not even two years into the thing yet. And I think what we're seeing here and what we saw in that Oval Office meeting that you made reference to was this really unusual friendliness towards Russia that isn't always easy to explain, and we're still seeing it. We saw it in, in, in this refusal to kind of implement, implement the latest round of sanctions. And I think, you know, there's a relationship here that we don't fully understand or it isn't fully explainable, and the president's never really fully explained it. And Comey seems to have been caught up on the wrong side of that to a degree. I mean, we found out it was from your reporting with others at The New York Times that the president met with Russian officials the day after he fired Comey and pretty much echoed what he had said in that interview. I mean, he, he, he said that he told the, the Russian ambassador and the Russian foreign minister that firing Comey had relieved great pressure on him. He called Comey a nut job. Um, I, I don't think the president ever imagined that, that these comments would get out to the wider public. There were 12 pages of typewritten notes taken by a note taker in that room. And there was a lot in that meeting. He also shared incredibly sensitive, classified intelligence with the Russians as well. And so, you know, we're in this weird position where the president, when he has time to think about what he's saying, says, well, I didn't fire Comey. I, you know, when he's premeditated about it, he goes, well, he points to the Hillary investigation and other issues. But when he's in a private moment or when he lashes out, then it's, I fired Comey because of the Russia investigation. I didn't want it. I wanted it over. And, and firing him kind of relieved the pressure on that. It didn't in the end because we now have Robert Mueller. Um, but I think he thought so at the time that it was going to. Well, also, what was so interesting about his Russia comments back then was that it contradicted 
you know, the day Comey was fired, I, I mean, I was on the air that night and a lot of White House folks, I interviewed Kellyanne Conway, you know, were, were pushed out in front of cameras uh, in order to say that, you know, he was fired because basically the way he had treated Hillary Clinton. That was the initial narrative that they were pushing. And then the president reversed that in that interview and also with what he had said to the Russians. And then I, I just interviewed a White House official, I think it was like two nights ago, who said a whole new reason, which I never heard someone from the White House saying, and I, maybe I just missed it. But uh, this uh, White House official the other night was saying on the air that the reason Comey was fired because Comey leaked, uh, leaked information, which seems a whole new reason that just kind of they've suddenly popped up with. Yeah, this, this White House is not great at, at staying on message. I think what we saw that first night when, when Comey was fired was that they had agreed upon what the message was and that there were a number of officials, the general counsel, a lot of people that were involved in making that decision and shaping how it was going to be presented. But as Trump is wont to do, he gets out there on his own the next day and he says what's on his mind. What's on his mind was the Russia investigation. It, it's been nearly a year since the president first went on record about all this. Do you have a sense of why he would kind of go down this road again. I mean, obviously, he wants to respond to Comey because he can't help himself, I guess. I, you know, I think it, it's, it's the continuing Russia investigation itself, which is it infuriates him. It's Comey out there talking about it, questioning his integrity, questioning his honesty. And then he looks at Jim Comey and says, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to fight back. And, you know, Trump has built a reputation as somebody who likes to fight back, who likes to play tough. And so when he's being called out, as he sees it, he's going to respond. Yeah. Matthew Rosenberg, appreciate it. Thanks very much. Joining me Thank now you. are criminal defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, author of Trumped Up, How Criminalization of Political Differences Endangers Democracy, and CNN Chief Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Professor Dershowitz, I mean, the president's changing story on why he fired James Comey, uh, saying it wasn't about Russia, which is what he said to Lester Holt that it was about just days uh, after it actually happened. I mean, shouldn't he stick to one story? He should stick to no stories. He shouldn't say anything about it. But it's obvious that the effort was to end the Russia investigation. I mean, and that's OK, said, in your well, opinion. Well, it's not OK. I think it's not illegal. Uh, I don't think it's a crime because the president does have the authority under a unitary executive theory to tell his attorney general, I want you to investigate this, but not that. Thomas Jefferson said, I want you to put Aaron Burr in jail. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, I want you to put the Nazi saboteurs in the electric chair. Uh, I don't want you to investigate that. That should change. That's not okay. But it's not illegal today under the law. It Jeff? sure is. I mean, this is a fundamental disagreement that Alan and I have mm -hmm. that, um, you know, all those examples of setting investigative priorities are certainly within the president's power. But if the president fires the FBI in, uh, director to stop him from investigating the president himself, that is a corrupt motive. That is the definition of obstruction. So you're saying the intent he, matters. The intent is the whole, the whole story. Well, that's and the point. It's the whole thing. You never can have a crime where the intent is the whole thing. You have to have an illegal act. And you can't have an illegal act when the president acts within his constitutional authority. But Alan, Metaphysically, you can't have an act that is both constitutionally authorized under Article 1, under Article 2, and at the same time is criminal. And you must have an actus reus. You must have an illegal act. And it would undercut the power of the president to start questioning why he pardoned, why he fired. Once he did it, and it's within his authority, you can't question him, just like you can't question a senator for his vote on the Senate floor, and you can't question a judge for their vote in the Supreme Court. Their laws are full of examples 
of acts that are otherwise legal, not by but, presidents, but, but, but made illegal by the intent. Insider trading being a perfect oh, example. But but I mean, you you have said this that the president you know has this unfettered ability to act. But what's the authority for that? There, I mean, this unitary theory. I mean, that's a controversial theory that not everybody agrees with. But take for example, insider trading. The act is trading having information that you obtained improperly and illegally. So that's the act. But I know of no case. They purposely did not impeach Clinton. They did not impeach uh, uh, Nixon. They did not try to impeach Bush. All of them engaged in acts, particularly Bush, with an alleged corrupt motive. He pardons all these people, Casper Weinberger, in order to end the investigation that was going to lead to him. On his last day in office. No, but that was the conclusion done by the special prosecutor. And nobody suggested, nobody, no historian, no lawyer, that President Bush committed a crime or an impeachable offense by engaging in a pardon to stop an investigation of himself. I, I want to move to, to okay. another legal yes. matter, yes. which is the uh, the Michael Cohen uh, situation that the president, uh, Michael Cohen, their teams are going to be able to, to review, it seems like, some uh, of these of these documents. How difficult is it going to be for the defense to prevent at least a good part of these documents from actually being uh, used by the FBI? It's, it's going to be impossible, and it should be impossible, because attorney-client privilege is a narrow privilege, and it applies only to certain communications when there is an actual attorney-client relationship. And I think the judge is setting up a sensible system where there will be a review of these documents to see whether any are covered by the attorney-client privilege, and those will be excluded, and that's proper, but most of these documents will not be excluded. You'll recall that I made that suggestion on this show, and Jeffrey said it was a terrible idea. I didn't say it was a terrible he idea. I thought it would I be it was a waste of time and unnecessary. I still do, but it's now, not a bad idea. Now suddenly it's a good idea. Well, I, I mean, think I still think it's a good idea. Okay. Look, you're going to have a judge or somebody assigned by the judge to look through the papers, and I hope he's right. If there's nothing that's lawyer-client privilege here, let the prosecutors see it all. Let them prosecute. But if they find communications between a lawyer and a client that are legitimate, no FBI agent should get to see that and leak it. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you. Jeff Tubin as well. Thanks. Well, up next, we have more breaking news. New reporting tonight that the president has been warned that Michael Cohen will turn against him if he faces criminal charges. Wait until you hear who warned the president this. Details on that next. Also had the president claiming in a tweet that California's governor is trying to back out of having the National Guard at the border and using the phrase crime infested and a breeding concept in reference to immigration. I'll talk it over with Univision's anchor Jorge Ramos. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. We have more breaking news tonight. This from the Wall Street Journal just came out reporting that one of the president's longtime legal advisors warned him just a few days ago that this lawyer, that his lawyer, Michael Cohen, would flip on him if he was faced with criminal charges. Michael Rothfeld of the Wall Street Journal joins us now on the phone with the breaking story. So, Michael, first of all, can you just explain to who this advisor of the president is, Jay Goldberg, and what he's advising the president about Michael Cohen? 
Uh, sure, Anderson. Jay Goldberg is a seasoned attorney. He's been both a criminal defense lawyer and a prosecutor. He's uh, worked with uh, Donald Trump for many years. Um, it, he started in the 90s and the 2000s, and he uh, has a you know he's a he's an experienced litigator. He told um, President Trump in a call Friday morning that um, if Michael Cohen were charged, well, he basically says, you know, even Sammy the Bull Gravano, mob guys, when they're faced with prison time, they flip. And pretty much anybody that is facing that situation is going to flip. Michael Cohen is certainly not a hardened uh, mafioso. So if he's going to be charged, he's likely to turn on the president. And he's told uh, President Trump to be careful of that. It's so interesting. I mean, the, the what reason is Goldberg citing to back up his claim that Cohen is so untrustworthy? Because in your article, Goldberg says that Cohen is a one on a scale of one to 100 on the trustworthy scale. And that's I mean, that's his well, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, he he uh, he's making he's speculating based on his own experience and saying that you know Cohen is a family man. He's you know he's primarily been a, a lawyer and a businessman. He's not clearly the kind of career criminal that Jake Goldberg has witnessed in his lifetime in his professional legal career. So he's he's essentially saying, look, a guy like this. Um, from what I've seen, is almost certainly going to flip. It's interesting because it sort of backs up what uh, Stormy Daniels' attorney, Michael Avenatti, has been saying on a lot of television programs, including this one, that, you know, Michael Cohen talks a big game. I think he said at one point he would take a bullet for, for Donald Trump. Uh, he would do anything for him. Um, but the, the kind of the bigger somebody talks, the, the, the harder they fall. What was the president receptive, do we know, to, to Goldberg's advice? Did he indicate to Goldberg that he shares his concern? Well, I mean, President Trump said Michael's, you know, Michael's very strong and uh, he has confidence in him. And, you know, Cohen, as you said, has been tweeting, uh, I'm never going to uh, abandon, you know, the president. But, um, uh, and he, we know, well, it's been reported that he called Michael Cohen same day as he spoke to Jay Goldberg on Friday. It's not clear the timing of if he got off the phone with Goldberg and then called Cohen after that mm. because he did speak to Goldberg in the morning. But um, he did thank him. He didn't uh, give a lot of feedback other than saying, you know, I, I think Michael's a strong guy. It would be interesting to know, you know, the timing if, if he called Cohen after talking to Goldberg. It's important to point out that Goldberg is confirming this on the record. I mean, he talked to your newspaper. I know my, go- my colleague, Gloria Borger, also just talked to him, and she'll join me in a minute. Is there any reason to believe that Goldberg has a pre-existing beef with Cohen that might be influencing no. what no. no, not at all. No, I mean, I, he doesn't uh, have any acrimony with him. His, I think his motivation is to, is to perhaps publicly warn the president. We spoke to him this morning um, at his apartment on the Upper East Side, and um, I think he, he probably wants to make sure that he, what he's saying is heard loud and clear. You know, if Michael Cohen calls you, if Michael Cohen tries to visit you, just be careful that he's not wearing a recording device. So oh. I think that's his motivation. Oh. Uh, Michael Rothfeld, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Fascinating Thank reporting from, the, uh, from, from you tonight. Joining us now are CNN Chief Political Analyst Gloria Borger, CNN Political Director David Chalian, and CNN Political Analyst and New York Times White House Correspondent Julie Hirschfeld-Davis. Uh, Gloria, I know you, you called Joe, Jay Goldberg as soon as this story broke. Right. You've known him for quite a while. Right. What did he tell you? 
Well, he told me uh, he told me the same thing. And, you know, let me let me give you a little context about Jay Goldberg and Donald Trump. Jay Goldberg negotiated both uh, of Donald Trump's divorces uh, from uh, Marla and from Ivana. So they go back a long way. And the president does call him from time to time. And last Friday morning, he was sort of surprised to get this to get this phone call from the president. And he just flat out went out of his way to say, look, I know you're close to Michael Cohn, but let me just tell you something. This guy is going to end up cooperating with the prosecutors because he said, and I'm going to quote him here, anybody who is facing 30 years never stands up. Without exception, a person facing a prison term cooperates. And he also warned him that he might also wear a wire. And then he also said to the president, do not speak to the special counsel. They can jam you up even if you're telling the truth. And so, you know, the president has, you know, a longstanding relationship with Jay Goldberg, whom I believe is in his mid-80s. And um, when I asked him, what did the president say to you? Um, He said that he was quiet and that there really wasn't much of a response at all. I mean, I just uh, the idea of of Michael Cohen possibly wearing a wire yeah. when talking with the president. I mean, that is is stunning. He did go to have dinner. I think it was at Mar-a-Lago uh, two weekends ago, if memory serves me correct. Sure. Oh, time is sort of truncated. But was it clear to you if Goldberg is advising the president to even remain in contact with Cohen or is it to just be, you know, careful and watch what you say? I, I think it's I think, you know, if it were up to Goldberg, that the president would not have any conversations with with Michael Cohen. Uh, but and, and he know. And by the way, Goldberg knows Michael Cohen a little bit. And he has you know made the case to me that, you know, he has nothing against Michael Cohen. But the president uh, has always been his client. Donald Trump has always been his client. He also recommended uh, a lawyer that he thought perhaps should join the president's legal team. He wouldn't tell me who that was, but um, it's from a a large firm. And I think that he it's interesting to me, quite honestly, that the president is reaching back to speak with. Uh, a lawyer that he has known for decades and decades to try and feel him out on this because he has clearly has a comfort level uh, with Jay Goldberg. You know, David, Michael Cohen has always positioned himself, as I was saying to Michael from The Wall Street Journal a second ago, you know, he's the most loyal of all Trump loyalists. He'd take a bullet, he'd do anything. How surprising that, I mean, is it to you that at least one of the president's allies is now very publicly advising him, look, you know, be wary of him because everybody, everybody flips. Yeah, Anderson, I'm glad you just raised with Gloria that Mar-a-Lago dinner, because one of the things in watching the Cohen-Trump relationship in this period of time is watching for any cracks in it. And so far, we haven't seen any cracks. You're right. Michael Cohen's out there saying, I'll jump off a building for him. Donald Trump is inviting him and embracing him and having dinner with him in public view. Uh, Obviously, that was before the raids. But nonetheless, while the swirl of Stormy Daniels and all the questions were still around him and and so you're looking to see, are there going to be any cracks? And now you have an old uh, colleague, lawyer, confidant of Donald Trump's for decades, call him up and try to chisel a crack in that relationship. And, and I think we just have to keep watching here to see if indeed from the president's side or Cohen's side, we see them participate in any separation. Julie, I mean, the idea, again, of Michael Cohen wearing a wire in the presence of the, of the president, uh, is that even possible given that the Secret Service screens people who come in contact with the president? I mean, I highly doubt it. I think I think the the advice that this this old friend of 
President Trump was trying to get across is you don't know what he's going to do if he's faced with real legal jeopardy and the real threat of a prison term. And I do think it's interesting, you know, Gloria mentioned that, you know, uh, he, he's calling somebody who he's had a relationship with for many, many years and who isn't currently advising him. I think this speaks to how um, really um, nervous the president is and in some ways feels that he hasn't been well served by his team of lawyers that he has both in the White House and outside in all of these matters. He's got the Mueller investigation that he's dealing with now, the potential that this Cohen raid hasn't opened more doors of you know legal complications for him, and he really is um, sort of reverting back to the team of people he's had around him for so many decades because he feels that he's not being protected, and we know that this president feels like he always wants to be insulated in some ways. The problem is there's no way to do that right now. There's so many avenues that this raid has now opened for him, and he's very worried about the consequences of that. Yeah, Gloria, I mean, the elephant in the room is obviously the prospect of pardons. There was that, you know, the recent uh, Scooter Libby pardon, which could be seen as a possible signal to anyone about thinking about flipping on the president. I guess the question is whether the president is willing to risk the blowback if he were to pardon Michael Cohen. And frankly, I'm not even sure among his supporters there would be any blowback. You know, I I asked uh, Jay Goldberg about whether the question of pardons came up and he sort of changed the subject. And I'm not I'm, I'm not sure whether there was a miscommunication or not. It seemed to me like it didn't come up in this in this particular conversation. I think what you had was an old friend who did Trump's divorces, in which, I might add, Trump did very well, um, did his divorces, has been in touch with him, um, and uh, is friends with his wife also. You know, I was told that he called the president, called the wife, answered, talked with the president for five minutes or so. President said, how am I doing? She said, she, <laughs> she said you're doing great. Puts uh, Jay on the phone. They have this, this conversation. And I think to Julie's point, the, the president wants to hear from people he feels that, ha- that they have his best interest at heart because he has known them for decades. Yeah. And he thinks Michael Cohen, sorry, Anderson, yeah, I was going to say, he, he thinks Michael Cohen is one of those people. That's a role that Michael that's Cohen right. has played. And so that's why the level of concern is so high for the president, because Michael Cohen isn't just really close, Anderson. Michael Cohen, in their entire relationship, yes. is in charge of the weak spots of Donald Trump, in charge of the potential pitfalls. That's what the role of the fixer has been. And so that's why the level of concern gets ratcheted and up. There, so and much. he's so loyal. I mean, you know, there is no more loyal person to Donald Trump than, than Michael Cohen. And I believe the president may have said that to, to Jay Goldberg in, in one way or another. Um, but, you know, he was generally quiet in right. listening to this advice. But I think it must be hard for the president to hear that, to be honest. Julie, if Michael Cohen uh, does flip, if that circumstances arises, I mean, it wouldn't just be the president who potentially Michael Cohen has information about. I mean, Michael Cohen has been at the epicenter of an awful lot of conversations and deals and hush agreements um, and who knows what else and who knows what other sorts of activity that he might be able to point a finger at other people about. Well, that's true. And, you know, we heard a little bit about who's on his client list uh, the other day at the hearing. Um, But the the point is that, um, you know, 
the president and his legal team and Cohen and his legal team don't know exactly what the prosecutors now have. And that was part of what was behind this this dispute in court the other day. They really need to know what the prosecutors are working with before they know how they can respond. And I think that it sounds like from Gloria's reporting and the journal's reporting that that was part of this conversation is they're trying to devise a strategy to figure out what to do about the fact that now these investigators have this trove of documents. So you're right. It could it could be much broader even than we're imagining now. Gloria, just finally, do we know who kept Michael Cohen out of the White House from working in the White House? Uh, I, it, that's a really good question. I presume the president uh, did and the president's family did. Now, I've been told uh, by a source uh, close to Michael Cohen that Michael didn't really want to go in the White House, uh, that he felt he could serve the president better by remaining outside the White House. But then I've been told by other people that, of course, he wanted to go serve uh, in the White House. He's a political person. He's a he's a Democrat, by the way, but that he that he did want to go in. But, you know, so you hear it sort of both ways. But I think the decision was made that that it wouldn't be the best thing for the president. Interesting. Uh, thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. More breaking news from President Trump's news conference. He reiterated his claim this evening several times that no one has been tough on Russia. We'll take a look at whether that's true. We'll talk about that and hear what he's saying now about new Russian sanctions after the war of words over whether there actually would be any. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. More breaking news from President Trump's news conference this evening. The president now insists that new sanctions will be slapped on Russia for its support of Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria when the time is right. He also said this. There has been nobody tougher on Russia than President Donald Trump. Between building up the military, between creating tremendous vast amounts of oil, Uh, We raised billions and billions of dollars extra in NATO. There has been nobody tougher than me. With the media, no matter what I did, it's never tough enough because that's their narrative. But Russia will tell you there has been nobody tougher than Donald Trump. This comes after senior administration officials told CNN that the Russian embassy was told there will be no additional sanctions against Russia. That was after U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said there would be an announcement and there was drama all over that. Let's get the latest now from CNN's Jim Acosta, who was at today's news conference at Mar-a-Lago. So you have U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley saying on Sunday on uh, television on Face the Nation there would be additional sanctions. Uh, 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 Jim Shudo, I'm sorry. Would be, no adi- uh, would be additional sanctions uh, on Russia possibly announced on Sunday or on Monday by uh, Steve Mnuchin. The White House then basically seemed to reverse that. Do we know what really happened? Well, what happened in the end was it appears the Trump administration gave a clearer signal to Russia than it did to the president's own ambassador to the United Nations uh, with this message now confirmed by the White House saying that they told them there will be no new sanctions. Now, early on this weekend, the message that was coming out, or rather the explanation from the White House, was that Nikki Haley had gotten over her skis a bit. She got ahead of the policy process in announcing those sanctions. But in fact, that doesn't look to be the case. Uh, The president appears to have changed his mind. And and when he changed his mind on imposing those new sanctions on, on Russia for helping support Syria's chemical weapons system. Remember, that's the function of these sanctions. When he changed his mind, that message was not delivered clearly, if at all, 
to the U.N. ambassador when she went out in that very public forum in the United Nations to, to make that pledge. It, it, it is a uh, embarrassing, to say the least, miscommunication, uh, but also, uh, frankly, so, some misleading explanations from the White House early on blaming Nikki Haley when, in fact, it was the president who changed his mind. Yeah, and of course, it would be fascinating to know exactly what was in the president's head of why he reversed the, the policy. I mean, you believe this fits a pattern from President Trump with his policy on Russia. It does, with his own administration's policy on Russia. So there, there, presumably there was some decision-making, policy-making process here where they decided to uh, draw up these sanctions and then oppose those sanctions and, and then allow the U.N. ambassador to announce those sanctions to the world, the president changing his mind and then undercutting her and that policy. You'll remember that when the U.S. expelled uh, some 60 Russian diplomats from the U.S. following the poisoning of the former Russian spy in the U.K., along with many U.S. allies expelling diplomats at the same time, we learned afterwards that the president was surprised by the number, that that number 60 was, in his view, too high, that he wanted to be more in line with the single digits that a number of European countries we're doing again the president disagreeing uh, with his own administration's decision as it pertains to Russia. Uh, and that's a real problem because it appears, Anderson, this reflects a division not only within the Republican Party with the approach to Russia, but within his own administration and th those divisions breaking out into the public eye. Yeah. Jim Shudo. Jim, thanks very much. Thank Still you. to come, the president hit the Twitter machine this morning. One of the more controversial outputs using the words crime infested and breeding concept. We'll set our presidential decoder ring to California. Get some clarity from Univision anchor Jorge Ramos. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. President Trump is taking aim again at California for its sanctuary laws, limiting cooperation with federal immigration enforcement. The president is also raising questions by his choice of words in a tweet this morning. Here it is. He said, quote, there is a revolution going on in California. So many sanctuary areas want out of this ridiculous crime infested and breeding concept. Jerry Brown is trying to back out of the National Guard at the border. The people of the state are not happy, want security and safety now. Now, many took notice of the crime infested as well as breeding. As for what exactly he meant, even his Secretary of Homeland Security couldn't quite explain why he mentioned breeding when asked about it this afternoon. Joining me for his take on uh, this, I spoke to him earlier, Univision anchor Jorge Ramos. Jorge, the president's use of the term breeding concept in his tweet this morning, I'm wondering what you thought by, by he meant by that. Well, it's, I mean, I, I give up. I, I really cannot interpret President Trump. But what I'm seeing every single time whenever he talks about immigrants is that he's equating them with, with criminals. He's criminalizing a whole population. I was reading other of his tweets. He, he was talking about the, the Supreme Court reaction. He was saying that this is a public safety crisis. That's also a lie. He, was, he wants to keep America safe. Well, among the, the border between Mexico and the United States, you have some of the safest towns in, in the country. So I really don't know what the president was talking about. In, in specific, I mean, the referencing to, to breeding, it, I mean, obviously there's a, a number of critics just thought it was it had, you know, seemed racist. Yes. And, and this is not the first time in which President Trump has 
made uh, racist remarks when he said that Mexican immigrants were criminals and rapists. That's a racist remark when he said that Josh Gonzalo Curiel couldn't do his job simply because of his Mexican heritage. That's a racist remark. And when he said that people from Haiti and African nations were from asshole countries, that's a racist remark. So this is just one more. The problem that I see, Anderson, is that this is becoming normal. And I think hate is contagious. And if the president of the United States is making racist remarks, just imagine what his supporters um, might be saying in social media, which I read all the time. Uh, I, I think we cannot normalize this behavior, and this is not normal. We are not in normal times. The, the president, I mean, he has been very frustrated with the state of California. There are laws that restrict local police uh, from informing federal agents uh, uh, about uh, people who are being uh, released from prison uh, who are undocumented. Uh, even two California counties, Orange County, San Diego. I mean, they've recently sided with the Trump administration on, on, on this issue of helping federal authorities. Yeah, but I think uh, San Diego is on the wrong side of history. Who's going to be defending immigrants? And I, I think the Trump administration continues to arrest people who have no criminal records. They continue to destroy thousands of of families. And, you know, I, I just came from the border. I was visiting uh, Brownsville and Matamoros, Mexico. And, and I can report to you that there is no invasion at the border, no invasion whatsoever. As far as I know, Mexico has not been declared an enemy of the United States. And not only that, I didn't see armies of bad hombres willing to jump the fence. So I think uh, what the president is doing, uh, suing uh, California and what he wants to do with the National Guard, sending thousands of them to the border is completely useless. It's, um, it's a waste of time and money. It was interesting to hear the president. Uh, it was, uh, I think, more than a week ago uh, that he used the term enemy combatants, were, uh, saying that enemy combatants were coming across uh, across the border, which I think may be the first time that he's used that term. I'm not sure if that was in order to try to get the military to uh, to pay for, for the construction of the wall. But the idea that there are enemy combatants, al-Qaeda um, and, and the like, coming across the border, uh, that certainly is a stretch. And I, I didn't see that. Um, I've, I've been going to the border uh, hundreds of times, Anderson, and I have not seen that. 9-11, um, uh, all the terrorists that, that came to the United States didn't come through Mexico. And, and again, this is just another example in which Donald Trump is trying to criminalize an immigrant population. Uh, Clearly, Donald Trump is the most anti-immigrant president since the 1950s. He wants to cut legal immigration by half, and he wants to deport as many immigrants as, as he can. During the campaign, you, you might remember, he wanted to deport 11 million people in two years. It's completely impossible. But this is exactly the man who's president of the United States right now. Can you understand, though, his frustration with a state that, that does bar local authorities from alerting immigration agents if a, a, you know, a dangerous criminal who is in the country illegally is being released from prison? Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. And I am not defending any criminals. I, I think that would be ludicrous and it doesn't make absolutely any sense. But but to criminalize the whole immigrant population simply because of what a few people are doing is I think is completely wrong. It's, it is as if I would be saying that all white men in the United States uh, might be criminals simply because of what Stephen Paddock did in Las Vegas uh, last year, killing 58 people. It is not right and it is not appropriate. Mm. Jorge Ramos, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Anderson. Well, just ahead, chaos, terror, and heroes. Southwest Flight 1380 had all of those in a dramatic 22-minute emergency. The latest on the investigation next on 360. Hey, it's Howard Beck. 
And I've got former NBA champion and current yes analyst, Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Reports, The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight, the NTSB is asking for help as it investigates the deadly engine failure on Southwest Flight 1380. They released these photos showing debris from the plane that fell from the sky. Now, according to reports, these items and others were found in Berks County, Pennsylvania, about 70 miles away from Philadelphia Airport, where the plane made that emergency landing. The safety board is asking anyone else who finds debris to contact them or the FBI. Meanwhile, we're learning new details about the passenger in row 14 who died. A Philadelphia health official says the mom of two died of blunt impact trauma of the head, neck and torso. It's believed fragments of the engine hit her after they shattered through a window. There's also a lot of praise for the pilot whose survivors say had nerves of steel during the crisis. Polo Sandoval has more. Yeah, we have a part of the aircraft missing, so we're going to need to slow down a bit. Captain Tammy Jo Schultz piloting Southwest Flight 1380. Did you have the uh, medical meet us there on the runway as well? We've got uh, injured passengers. Injured passengers, okay. And are you, is your airplane physically on fire? On fire, but part of it's missing. They said there was a hole and, and uh, someone went out. Um, I'm sorry, you said there was a hole and somebody went out? Southwest 1380, it doesn't matter. We'll work it out there. Uh, it was chaos on board, but you wouldn't have known it listening to Captain Schultz, an experienced Navy fighter pilot among the first women to transition to tactical aircraft. Passengers saying she remained calm through the landing. And we then, dropped down, and then, was, then it was pretty steady. So, And then they said we were going into Philadelphia, and that's what we did. We had a very good landing. And the pilot was a veteran of the Navy. She had 32 years in, a woman, and she was very good. Schultz dreamed of flying since she was a teenager, but she wasn't sure if it was possible. With no professional female pilots at the time, she faced an uphill battle, telling her story in the book Military Fly Moms. I had never touched an airplane, but I knew flying was my future. My junior year in college, I met a girl who had just received her Air Force wings. My heart jumped. Girls did fly. I set to work trying to break into the club. However, the Air Force wasn't interested in talking to me, but they wanted to know if my brother wanted to fly. She found opportunity with the Navy, taking a test and filling out paperwork for officer candidate school. A year later, she finally found a recruiter willing to accept her application. She set off to accomplish what she described as intense, joyful, and a horrible experience. But she got through it. All of it, preparing her to fly the plane on Tuesday, more damaged than even she knew. Shrapnel from the engine casing damaged the aircraft, puncturing a hole and nearly sucking out passenger Jennifer Reardon. Somebody screamed and we realized what had happened when the window went out. And so I tried and tried and I couldn't. I just couldn't. Uh, and then uh, Andrew came over just trying to get her, just trying to get her back in. Seated in row 14, the 43-year-old mother of two fatally injured. Nearby passengers tried desperately to keep her inside the aircraft. We started CPR on the lady, um, which we continued for about 20 minutes. Um, we were still doing CPR when the plane landed. We made every effort that we could possibly make to save this woman's life. Fellow passengers doing everything they could for the stranger whom neighbors describe as full of life. 
She was a remarkable mother, remarkable wife. Reardon's family devastated. Jennifer's vibrancy, passion, and love infused her community and reached across her country. Her impact on everything and everyone she touched can never be fully measured. Phyllis Sandoval joins us now uh, in uh, Philadelphia. Where does the investigation stand? Well, Anderson, late tonight, word from the Federal Aviation Administration that in the next two weeks we will be requiring uh, that aircraft carriers begin to uh, really start to focus, or some of these carriers really start to focus on the engines of these planes. And it's the same model that was on this plane that was affected during yesterday's incident. Of course, the prevailing theory for investigators with the National Transportation Safety Board uh, is that one of those fan blades was detached from the engine, setting off this catastrophic chain of events. So it's going to be extremely important that authorities in essence, use uh, ultrasonic equipment to look for any potential signs of any metal fatigue, because as we heard tonight in what is expected to be the last uh, press conference by the National, National Transportation Safety Board, at least here, this investigation is certainly not over, but that is at least what their main focus of the investigation is tonight, Anderson. Well, it's not about. Thanks very much. Up next, new reporting tonight that the president has been warned that Michael Cohen will turn against him if he faces criminal charges. We'll tell you who gave the president that warning on the phone when we continue. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.